So this morning what we're going to be looking at really is, is, is the mind of Christ. So we're going to step out of Corinthians today, and we're going to be looking at some of the other epistles that Paul had written uh, to the church uh, in, in Galatia, in Rome, in, in Ephesus. Just, just taking a look at those and seeing how they prepare our minds for where the Scriptures are going to go next. If you've read ahead in Corinthians, you know what we're about to run into. Uh, Paul's going to start calling the church in Corinth into account for areas where they've drifted from God's way of doing things. And in preparation for that, what I wanted to do is, is give us an opportunity as a congregation just to look at what godly living looks like when we're oriented properly and what it can become if we're not. So if you've ever used a compass to find your way around, it was the age before GPS on your phones, um, you would use a compass from time to time. When I was a boy at, at, uh, at boys camp, one of the things you had to learn to do was use a compass. And if I was going to earn my, my little chief badge, what I had to do was learn how to use the compass to go off and to start my fire and keep my fire going. And in the morning, if you kept your fire going, you get your little chief badge and your little chief name, which was great. And mine was Crazy Paddles because I I was a canoeer. Yay. Don't ever call me that. Um, but one of, the, um, one of the things that I discovered was that I wasn't really good at reading the compass, and I should have been because I was, I was in college at this time. But uh, they give you the map, and they tell you where you're supposed to go, and this is where you have to start your fire. So what they're doing is you're teaching you navigation and fire starting skills and survival skills and all that. And although you weren't allowed to kill any wildlife and eat it, you, you, you wait till the morning. So um, I go out, and, and I had just a heck of a time finding where my campsite was supposed to be because I really wasn't good at reading my compass. So I thought I was going in the right direction, right? And I'm aiming at where I think is north, and I'm going, going. I'm not having a lot of success. I ended up cheating using the stars because it was a clear night, and I'm like, well, I know that's north, and this is not. So, but here's what can happen. If you're a sailor, if you're a hunter, if, if you're in the military, and, and you're not taking into account the, the declination lines or you're not reading your compass properly, you can get lost in a hurry, right? Has anybody else ever had this experience? Okay. Have you ever read the map incorrectly and found yourself wrong? I'm talking to the women. Men don't need maps. But, but have, you, have, you ever, have you ever found yourself completely lost because you're just reading the map wrong? What happens, brothers and sisters, is that the mind of Christ that we're hearing here today is talking about how you've set and oriented yourself. If you're oriented correctly, the decisions you make, the choices you make, the way that you live will be consistent with God's way of doing things. Otherwise, there are layers, there are degrees of getting off course that eventually can lead you to ruin. So on the compass, we call those lines of declination. And so if you were to look on your map, if you have a really good topographical or topographical map, it'll say true north lines of declination, <clears throat> which means where you are, you have to adjust your compass slightly so that you're always reading true north. In the Christian life, these lines of declination are when we look to Scripture and we realize this is where society and culture and teaching and wisdom and philosophy around us, uh, the societal ethos and moray that we live in, this is where it's going, and that is not your true north. Your true north is to what the Scriptures called you to do. And wow, would you believe it, culture and Scripture do not always agree on what is right. Yeah? So... It's going to be crucial for us who are trying to learn to live like Jesus to set our compasses on true north. Everybody got the illustration? That wasn't too painful. So what we're going to, what we're going to engage today are what we refer to as six layers of corruption 
apart from Christ. So layers of corruption apart from Christ. If you're a note taker, uh, you're going to want to write down uh, one through six because we're going to go through each of these layers of corruption. And there's, there's three scripture passages we're working in. All of these are going to be from the Apostle Paul as he's writing to churches in the, in the first century, to the church in Rome, the church in Galatia, and the church in Ephesus. Remember what we're studying is the church in Corinth. So as Paul is writing to them, his message is going to be the same. He's going to say it a little differently to the different congregations, the different audiences. So I'd ask you to listen to me. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 5 through 11. So Romans 8, 5 through 11. And if you're really good, you're going to go to uh, put your finger there and you're going to go over to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. Romans 8, 5 through 11, Galatians 5, 16 to 25. If you don't have your Bibles with you or, or, and you didn't, it, that's not your habit or you haven't pulled it up yet, just listen. I want you to hear the apostles' words. This is from Romans, Romans 8, 5 through 11. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. That's what you call a thesis statement. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Pause. When Scripture speaks of peace and life, it's more than just not being at war with somebody and being alive. Life and peace in the Scripture, particularly when Paul or Jesus speak to it, what they're talking about is the shalom kind of peace. And what shalom is about, it's about not just being uh, in not fighting, okay? It's also talking about being in agreement, it's having understanding of one another. It's living in a fulfillment in a way that respects one another, that encourages, that allows one another to flourish. This is an idea of shalom. You're at peace with your God and you're at peace with your fellow man. What we do is in concert together. So when you hear that term shalom, it's not just don't be at war. So to be at peace and to live means that life is flourishing. So when the scripture here, when Paul is talking to the people in Rome, he says the mindset of the spirit, having that compass set correctly on the spirit means that you are living in life and peace, in shalom and flourishing. Okay, verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to even do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the, the Spirit of him who raises Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also Bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Paul's gentle refrain here, flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit. What he's trying to get folks, you and me now, to understand by proxy, because he's writing to them and to us as well, what was is, what he's saying is, if you live according to the flesh, in other words, your earthly, bodily, cultural, societal desires, if you live according to that, you will not find true life and peace with God or with one another. Because always, every culture, every society, they are at least one degree of declination away from God's way of doing things. Got it? The best American 
is at least one degree off from living things God's way, all right? Now, let's think about one degree for just a second. Any of you sailors, this is me not raising my hand. Okay, if you are off by one degree and you leave from the port of, let's say, Norfolk, Virginia, and you're, or Norfolk, Virginia, and you're going to, to Norfolk, England, okay, and you're one degree off and when you leave, whereabouts do you suppose you're going to land? Well, well, yeah, you're going to be, wow, they're speaking Spanish here. This is unique. Welcome to Madrid, huh? Well, one degree over time can take you a long way away from your intended destination. Same thing in flying, I suppose. I'm not a pilot, but Aaron, I imagine if you get in your plane and you're one degree off, are you going to end up anywhere near where you're supposed to be? Probably not. You're going to deviate. Those are those deviations. Ready? If you're trying to live life just one degree off from God's design for life and shalom, are you going to get there? No, because eventually what happens is you go more and more and more and more away from your original destination because you've declined to do God's do things God's way. And this is why God is saying, or Paul is saying, you're not going to experience the kingdom of heaven. You're going to miss it. Let me illustrate that. Now go to your Galatians passage. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. He's going to open up with the same kind of language. He says, I'm telling you, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These two are opposed to one another, so that you do not do what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law or the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh look like this, Paul says. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, that's arguing amongst uh, groups, arguing against one another, factions, Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when, when he says the kingdom of God, that's Jesus' term for God's way of doing things. If you live according to those things, you're not going to ever be able to do things God's way. And you're not going to find real life and real peace, fulfillment, flourishing. It will elude you no matter how much you chase it. Now, think about the list of the things that we have just talked about, or Paul just mentioned. Don't they sound terribly American? I mean, let's listen to this. Sexual immorality. By the way, by definition, that sexuality in any way deviant from God's design in the Scripture. Does that sound like our country at all? Moral impurity. Your moral compass, the things that are right and wrong, designed and doing things that are contrary to God's way of doing it. Sounds like America. Promiscuity. Do you need me to define that for you? Let's do that. One man, one woman for one lifetime. That's God's plan. Anything else is seeking sexual gratification, satisfaction outside of that plan. That's promiscuity. Sound like America? Does it sound like what you see on television every day? What I asked in the first service, I said, how many of you, if we go through that list and you just put them as little boxes to check, how long do you think it would take you 
during the course of, let's say, a day's watching of television to be able to check off every one of those things that we pipe into our homes and we watch and we read and we listen and we fill our minds with. And if you fill your minds with this, eventually what you filled your mind with is going to come out of your heart. It's going to come out in your behaviors and your actions. It's the fleshly desires that these things cater to. However, verse 22, Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, God's way of doing things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. The law is not against these things. Now those who belong in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So while in step with the Spirit, while having the mind of Christ and setting our compass right, understanding where the deviations and declinations can be and keeping our mind and our path straight with Christ... We can have the mind of Christ, and we can be full of real life and real peace. But apart from it, there are six degrees or layers of corruption, and this is what uh, Paul was writing about in Ephesians, and you can see those in in his letter in his writing to the Ephesians. So uh, the first of those layers is what we refer to as the hardness of heart. The first thing that happens is we begin to harden our heart against God's way and towards our own way. Another word for hardness could be desensitized. Let's go back to that television illustration for just a second. If you continually, perpetually were to watch, let's say, daytime soap operas, right? Yeah, I'm looking at you, Roland. That's you, isn't it, man? Soap opera kind of guy every day. All right. So, so if, if you're one of those folks who sits around and watches soap operas, you will become desensitized to the things that are normal and typical and happen all the time. I'm not a soap opera watcher, but I understand kind of what those are. But let me make it a little more real. How about the evening shows, the after the news kind of shows, the things that come on from the 9 to the 11 o'clock hour? What are some things that you begin to see in those? They desensitize you to it. Let me date myself slightly. I grew up kind of in the in the, the Friends era, right? So that's when I was in, in high school and, and college was when Friends was on. And I remember when Friends came on, you know, the first thing, oh, it's must-see TV, no, 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 no. Yay, we all got together and played games and watched TV. And uh, what we started to become desensitized to was what contemporary culture of the 90s wanted to make sure we began to accept, which was freedom of sexuality. Um, Everybody can work part-time jobs and live in $3,000 a month apartments in Manhattan. That's reality. Uh, $5,000 a month, maybe. Uh, we, we started to see that, that the gay lifestyle was okay, and, and it should be not just accepted, but embraced and endorsed. Uh, all these ideas that started to make their, their way into our culture, they were coming through those television shows. And we raised a generation of kids who, who it's not that they don't see it as wrong, they just see it as normal. That's okay. You know why? We became desensitized to it. How about the language that comes out of your mouth? Cruel words, profane words, judging words. These things we've become desensitized to, and they don't bother us anymore when they should, because out of the same mouth couldn't, shouldn't come both praising and cursing. We should be bothered about the things that we wouldn't do in front of Jesus, or say in front of Jesus, or listen to, or watch in front of Jesus. Now listen, we're all guilty here. 
Every one of us. I'm as guilty as, as the most guilty person in the room. I listen to things I shouldn't. I watch things I, I really shouldn't. I fill my mind with things, my, my entertainment time with things that I really shouldn't. They're not edifying. And the term for that is they're not worthy of the gospel. And what that unworthiness leads to is the hardness of heart. Now, in the scriptures, when it talks about the heart, you understand that means the desires, the joys, the understandings, the reasonings, the thoughts, faith, all these things come from the heart. And, and, and you can understand how the ancients would think that way. They're not making a scientific statement. God is not a fool who doesn't understand that the heart pumps blood and the brain does the processing of neurons. But what, what he's saying is you feel pain in your heart. Let me, let me prove it. How, how many of you ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend break up with you? What, what did it break? Your heart, okay? How many of you are a parent and have your child uh, make a really terrible decision contrary to what you've asked them to do and your child is now suffering consequences? What does that do? It, it breaks your heart as a parent. It causes you to have a heavy heart. I think my sisters and I put you through that some, Mom, didn't we? <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but not me, they did. But, uh, but if, you, if you think hard, hard about when you've been let down, it, it hurts your heart. It, it breaks your heart. Your heart is heavy. So we understand what the ancient authors were saying and, and how it's using it metaphorically, allegorically. In 1 Timothy 4.12, though, there's the best example of how we understand a hardened heart. As Paul is talking to, to Timothy, he defines how people have, been come, have become as a result of living in the flesh, and he says that their, consciousness, their conscience has been seared. Their conscience has been seared. Have you ever burned your finger? And, and you don't feel real good with it anymore? Have you, have you ever that? Like for a while, you, you can't feel really good because it's been seared. This terminology about the conscience being seared, he's saying your heart has become hard. You don't even feel pain when you should. You don't feel guilt and remorse when you should. You're not grieved when you ought to be. And that's the result of a conscience being seared, a heart being hardened. Brothers and sisters, that's the first step in being separated from Jesus, that first line of declination or de yeah, away from God's way of doing things, lines of deviation. So it's the hardened heart. The next one uh, in these deviations is layer two, and that's called a darkened understanding. In other words, the light is being blocked, and you don't understand the way God wants you to understand. We don't see things the way God sees it. I used to go for walks every once in a while um, in, in this path. It's up in the Shenandoah near where I went to school, and, and uh, you, could, you could walk a couple miles from this really beautiful lake, Smith Mountain Lake, and you could come up through the, the Shenandoah on the Blue Ridge Parkway area across the Appalachian Trail, and you could walk for several miles, and you would come to this, this other really beautiful place. Um, and, and, and I knew the path, and I knew along that path, it's where mountain laurels grew, and I love the smell of mountain laurels, and I love seeing the James River and just being in the Appalachia. It was just a place for me, and I used to like to make this walk, um, this, this hike. However, one time, uh, we, were, we were down by the lake, and that's where we had set up our camp that time, and I had to walk back up to the parking areas where the trucks were parked, which was you know, several miles away, and um, I didn't have a flashlight. Great move. And so I'm trying to find my way there in the dark. Well, when the light is there, you can see where to go because the light will guide you. But in the dark, you're liable to get, okay, or hurt <laughs> or turned around or completely confounded, all of which happened. And so if you've ever gone for that walk in the darkness, you realize it's kind of hard to find your way. It's hard to see where you're going. It's hard to make good choices about your direction. Huh? 
And so darkened understanding is you don't see things the way God wants you to see them. You, you, you look out there, but you don't see the details because there's no light shining on them. And you're just trying to go with what you think and what you know. How many people in the room know it all? I mean, you know everything. You got it. I got this. Don, no? No? Okay. No? Nobody? Of course not. That's crazy. The, the older you get, the wiser you get, the better educated you get, the more experience you've got, the longer you've been in your field, the more you realize how much there is for you to learn yet. Arrogance is for the youth who think they know everything. It starts at about age 13, we've discovered, uh, and, and, and it usually goes through about your early 30s when suddenly you realize how smart your parents actually were and how much of those crazy things they did actually make a tremendous amount of sense now. But when you're 17, you are the smartest person on the planet. You know exactly what to do, and nobody needs to tell you how to do it. You got this. I know. I know. Right? And this is how God, I think, a lot of times looks to us when, when, when he's saying, child, this is what I want. I know, I know, I got this. I'm going to do it my way. And God's just going, oh, my goodness. You don't have the understanding that you need to make great choices. So this is that second layer of confusion, darkened understanding. The third one is a gross ignorance of reality. And in this gross ignorance of reality, it doesn't matter if you know 10,000 facts. You're ignorant if you don't know the divine meaning or the purpose behind facts and how they relate to the great things of eternity. The gross ignorance of reality is when we allow cultural and worldly realities and wisdoms to usurp godly wisdom and truth. It happens all the time. You see it in the sciences. You see it in entertainment. You see it in social policies. We think we know best, and so we create policies and, and, and realities that are divergent from what God has said is his way of doing things and what is right and best for you. But when you believe that for so long, that becomes your reality. There's a lot of these going on in our world today. I think one of the most fascinating realities that people have accepted as truth is this one. Somehow, um, some astronomically large number of years ago, there was a mass floating around, and it was incredibly dense. How dense? Well, it's no way to know. And, and then suddenly, for no reason whatsoever, no outside forces acting on it, the mass exploded. And then it turned into planets, and there was water on one of them, and then lightning hit the water, and we had Macintosh computers and iPhones, and then the Tesla. And, and somehow complexity came about out of, out of chaos, and it was totally accidental. And you don't mean anything other than that you're a collection of cells and organisms that's destroying the planet, and you should never fly on an airplane again. Uh, what? And somehow this has become the reality for some people. Well, hang on a second. Can, can we back this up? Human life matters because you were created special by a God who intentionally put the universe together by the word of his mouth, the Ruach, that, that brought it all into existence. And he said, this is good, and I'll make it this way, and this is good. And the crowning jewel of his creation was human beings, which were made in the image of God, which means we're conscious, we understand good and bad, we can plan for the future, we can imagine the future, we can teach what we've learned to those who are behind us, and we can theorize and, and idealize, and we can be artistic and creative and make music and song and philosophy and educate... We're made in the image of God. That's truth. And human life matters because God made you to be in a relationship with you. That's the truth. 
It's why don't murder because life was made in the image of God. Don't steal because each of us have what we need to survive it and share amongst ourselves. And all we do, we do as unto the Lord. So why would you steal from other people? Don't lie to people. Let the words come out of your mouth. Be truth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's way of living. Why? Because that's how he designed us. And so when you hear laws made in culture, those laws are built off the equity of God's reality, God's way of doing things. But as we reject God's reality, what are our laws based on now? What are our cultural values? What are our scientific values based on? The primacy of man? No, you're just an accident like all the other things the lightning that hit the pool of water caused. The primordial ooze created this, and you're just a byproduct of it. You're not special. Life isn't really special. Huh. It all starts to fall apart. Do you understand that the reality is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it to be in a relationship with you. And life matters because it's sacred and precious. And the way we live our lives should be consistent with loving the Lord our God with all our heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. You see, that's why. That's reality. But a gross ignorance of that reality is the third layer of being separated from God and darkened minds. Number four, desires drift to the wrong things or the right things the wrong way. John Piper had this to say, being ignorant of the true value of things in relation to God and eternity, people yield naturally to covetousness and licentiousness. That is, my desires go after the wrong things. Anybody? Or after the right things the wrong way. In other words, I want what I want and I'll do the wrong thing to get it. None of my desires has a proper relation to God, and so they are all in ruins. Desires drift the wrong way. Have you ever made bad decisions to get things that you want? You see, when we do this as Christians, we deviate from God's desires for ourselves and we set up our own desires for ourselves and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. And rather than making decisions out of wisdom, we make them out of selfishness and self-righteousness. Or we say, that's the right thing, I'll do whatever it takes to get there. Uh, Something we used to teach teenagers all the time when I was a youth pastor many, many, seems like a hundred years ago, uh, we would tell them, a principle you need to learn. If somebody will do it for you, they'll do it to you. Okay? If they'll do it for you, they'll do it to you. And here's what that looked like. If she'll break up with her boyfriend to come be your girlfriend, let me tell you what the future looks like, sport. She's going to leave you for the next guy who's better looking, smarter, faster, or drives a better Harley Davidson. Just saying. So, so what happens when, when somebody will lie for you? What should you expect of them? They'll lie to you to get something else they want. If you hire somebody off another company, you skim them off that company, and you bring them over here to boost your company and pay them a little more, and they leave that boss to come do it for you, what should you expect from them? Layer number five. A life of futility. In other words, you fill your life with things that have no eternal significance. Let's listen to Piper again. This leads, the fifth one, to a life of futility. Nothing of eternal significance is accomplished. Life is one big ash heap of wasted weeks and years. There's no service to the king of ages. So it is all meaningless in the end. 
like a man who works hard planting trees and landscaped flower gardens in a new housing project and then watches them get bulldozed because he was just doing his own thing and never consulted the master plan for where they belonged. Do you hear the words of Solomon to young Lemuel? He says, son, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All these things you're setting up for yourself. I've, I've learned this, son. In the end, it's all vanities. The sun rises and the sun falls, and there's nothing new under the sun. And all these things will fade and die illustratively. Some of you, at some point in your life, put avocado, avocado-colored countertops in your homes, didn't you? Some of you had day-glow orange couches or pants. Somebody in this room I know bought green corduroy pants. It didn't cause a divorce when they disappeared, but, but we had to move past that. I have made terrible fashion choices in my life, and I'm sure some of you may have as well. I'm not saying anything about what I'm wearing now, but you might later in 20 years. How many of you have ever invested good money in really bad things? Have you ever bought that car you just had to have? That house that you probably couldn't afford, but you just had to have it? You see, we buy things that don't last, hoping they're going to bring significance and happiness. But here's Solomon to young Lemuel again. Vanity, vanity, son. In the end, it all fades. It's all vanities, and what lives forever is God, God's love, and God's people. The rest of it is futile. Invest in things that have kingdom and eternal value. Otherwise, they have no significance in the long run. The final layer that people will arrive at as they've moved each one of these degrees away, that first degree, hardening their hearts to the things the Scripture teaches, that next degree, a darkened understanding that doesn't see things the way God wants us to see them because we're not spending time in the Scripture to hear His degree, hear His degree, hear His decree. Next degree is the gross ignorance of reality. We can't even see reality from God's perspective. We're completely immersed in our own concept. Our desires drift to the wrong things, we're living a life of futility now, and we're alienated from the life of God. We've moved completely over to the sixth layer, which is where we find ourselves alienated from the life of God. Let's listen to John Piper again. He says, a sixth layer of man's corruption, and the one that seals one's hopelessness without some mighty work of God or salvation, is mentioned, namely, that we're alienated from the very life of God. Our hardness and darkness and ignorance and licentiousness and futile behavior are the marks and motions of the living dead. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Paul said, self-indulgent widows, they are dead even while they live, alienated from the life of God, dead in trespasses and sin, and having no hope without God in the world. Scripture speaks clearly to what happens when we finally have given up on God's way of doing things and tried to do it our way. We're alienated from the very life of God. Friends, when you've shut God out of your life completely, what's left is just mankind's wisdom and mankind's happiness and mankind's assurances. Do you want to trust your eternity to the contemporary culture that we're living in? Is our culture perfect? Is our society perfect? Are our laws and our people and our values perfect? But God's is. 
And you see, when we look to society and we set our compass here rather than God's true north, eventually this leads way off of God's way and into ruin. And the only way to get to the right direction is to stop where you're going. Scripture calls this repenting. Stop what you're doing, turn back to God, and go the right direction. Anything other than God's way of doing things is sin. And if we live in sin, we reap disappointment.